Section 32 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies, An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases, by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombau. Homicide Part 9. The Goss Utterzook Tragedy, Part 8. Cross-examined by Mr. McVeigh. When Rhodes and I first raised the head and face, the face was white, and I looked at it closely with a view to determine whether I knew it, and concluded I had never seen the individual. I first saw the photograph last Friday evening. It was exhibited to me by Mr. Hayes, the Commonwealth Attorney. He did not inform me who it was. I was not informed at any time whose photograph it was. Mr. Hayes showed it to me and asked me if either of those faces looked like the man I found, and I immediately recognized the man standing. Question. Did not you know these were two photographs on the same plate, of the insurance agent and of this man whose body is alleged to have been found? Answer. I never heard of that. By the court. Was the face bloated or swollen to any extent whatever? Witness. I think not. I noticed it sufficiently to see, and if bloated at all, it was very slightly. Hugh Rambo, Esquire. I am deputy coroner, and reside in Penningtonville. I was notified officially in the case by Mr. Rhodes at about five or six o'clock in the evening of the 11th of July, and impaneled a jury right away. We found a whisker on the right side of the dead man's face. On the other side, the whisker had been rubbed off by a stick, and adhered to the stick. I immediately wrapped it in a piece of paper for preservation. I took a small portion of the hair from the head and wrapped it in paper also. We then examined the body lower down and found a cut just below the breastbone. We saw and examined several other cuts on the body, and then we took the body and carried it to the side of the turnpike. While we were getting the body out of the hole, my attention was called to a spot some sixty feet distant by some parties who had discovered a freshly made mound. I took my shovel and commenced to clear away the dirt, and there found the limbs. As it was growing dark, we removed the remains to Penningtonville, examined witnesses same evening and again next day. When the limbs were exhumed, there were a pair of white hose and a pair of shoes on the feet. I removed them from the limbs. Witness here identified the gaiters and hose removed by him from the limbs. At the place in the woods where the remains were found, the undergrowth is very thick, and there are many cedar trees. The limbs of the trees grow close to the ground and are full of branches. There was difficulty in seeing any distance on account of the dense growth. Subsequently to the inquest, there was another examination of the remains by Drs. Lewis, Bailey, and Howard. Mr. Wanger, the district attorney, was present at the time. Cross-examination. The hair on the top of the head was loose. Some of it was off, rubbed off, and lying on the skin. The one whisker that remained was rather loose and afterwards rubbed off. The odor was very offensive. We packed the body in ice that evening. Also some disinfectant was placed upon it by Dr. Bailey. 
Dr. Elisha W. Bailey. On the evening of the 11th of July, I received a message from acting coroner Rambo to go to Bear's Woods and examine a body. I went there and found some eight or ten persons present. I examined the body as it lay in the shallow grave, and found there was one cut opening into it between the third and fourth ribs, and about three inches from the breastbone. There was another similar cut between the fifth and sixth ribs, one between the sixth and seventh ribs, and one between the eighth and ninth. There was one other cut at the end of the breastbone, another in the neck, on the left side, about an inch above the collarbone. There was an incised wound commencing on the left side of the neck, running across the windpipe, and terminating on the opposite side of the neck. This wound opened into the windpipe. There was also a wound across the bridge of the nose at the lower third, depressing the cartilage. This wound showed that it was not done with a sharp instrument. I found that the front teeth, the four upper incisors and the four below, had been driven back into the mouth. Two of them were lying loose on the tongue, and the others were adhering. I removed them all from the mouth and have kept them in my possession. The hair upon the head was about an inch and a half in length, inclined to curl, and was of a dark brown color mixed with a few gray hairs. On the chin was a beard of several days' growth. The limbs were all disarticulated from the body, at the shoulder and hip joints. Witness produced the teeth which he had taken from the mouth as stated by him. The person had what I would call a very good set of teeth. They were firm and large, and appeared healthy and strong. At the time of the inquest I made an estimate of the age of the person and of his personal appearance. I considered him between thirty-five and forty years of age, five feet eight or nine inches in height, thirty-eight to forty inches girth of chest. The body showed an erect carriage, with the shoulders thrown back, throwing the chest well forward. The limbs were large, well-developed, and appeared to be those of a man in good physique. The hands were evidently not those of a laboring man. Dr. E. Lloyd Howard I reside in Baltimore City. I am a physician and surgeon by profession and practice. I reached Penningtonville on the evening of the 17th of July last. On the 18th, I witnessed the disinterment of a body in the burying ground at Penningtonville. This was in the afternoon. After the coffin was opened, I made a careful examination of the remains. I found the body to be that of a white man of about five feet eight inches in height, weighing about 170 or 180 pounds, and of stout frame. There were marks upon it indicating that a previous post-mortem examination had been held, also wounds which did not look as though they had been made for the purpose of examination. There was attached to the head a bundle of hair lying loosely to the top of the head, none, however, attached to the scalp. The hair was about an inch and a half long, of a dark brown color, and some gray hairs scattered through it. I removed a small portion for subsequent examination. There were no whiskers upon the face, except upon the chin, where was a beard of a few days' growth. The head was well formed, rather large size. The forehead was straight and square, large, full face, and still further enlarged, or slightly swollen, by post-mortem changes. The eyes were of a dark color, 
the exact shade could not be determined. The nose was well formed and rather small. There were certain injuries about the face which I noticed, a cut across the nose, dividing the bones from the cartilage. This cut was not inflicted with a sharp instrument. There were also marks of injury about the mouth. The upper front teeth had been driven back into the mouth, carrying with them a part of the socket of the teeth. The blow upon the nose must have been a very severe one, to have broken in the bone and cartilage in the manner it did. The blow upon the mouth also must have been a very severe one, to not only break in the teeth and knock them back, but also to break in the jawbone. I found ten teeth remaining in the upper jaw, and open, fresh sockets from which four others had been removed recently. Two upper jaw teeth had been lost previous to death. In the lower jaw I found nine teeth remaining in position, and evidence that five others had been lost immediately after death or immediately preceding it. There were evidences of two lower jaw teeth having been lost some months previous to death. At the time of death, he must have had twenty-eight teeth in all remaining in his mouth. The teeth lost previous to death, both in the upper and lower jaw, were back teeth. The general appearance and character of his teeth were perfectly good. They were white, even, and regular. There were three or four gold fillings, and there were slight marks of disease upon two teeth. The neck was large and thick. There was a wound across the front of the neck, dividing the windpipe and extending deeply into the tissues. The chest was large and capacious. The points it presented were that it had been opened in a previous post-mortem examination, and in addition thereto there were several wounds upon it. The exact nature or cause of these wounds it was impossible to determine. I examined the limbs, and found them cleanly disarticulated from the body at the shoulders and at the hip joints, evidently removed by a sharp-cutting instrument. They were large and well-developed. The wrists, ankles, feet, and hands were small for that sized frame. The nails were neatly trimmed, and the indications were that the man had not been accustomed to hard manual labor. The collar bones were large, throwing the shoulders well back. Cross-examination. At the time I went to Penningtonville, I volunteered to go with Dr. Lewis. Other persons accompanied us, and were present at the time of the exhumation and examination of these remains. Alexander H. Barnett's. I reside in the city of Baltimore, am in the office of the Assistant Treasurer of the United States. I was acquainted with Winfield S. Goss, have known him since 1859. I used to see him very frequently, almost daily, at the establishment of Harrington and Mills, where he was employed. At that time I had the books of that firm in my charge. I was with him there a little over two years. During the time he was there I saw him daily. Afterwards I met him occasionally. I saw him frequently, just as I see other people in the streets of Baltimore whom I know. He was a man of about five feet eight inches in height, was well built, erect, unusually prominent bust, shoulders thrown well back, of full form and well developed. He had dark eyes, straight nose, round full face, dark wavy hair, a prominent brow, and wide forehead. He had a stout neck. 
So far as I observed them, his teeth were very good. I simply saw them in conversation. I was in Penningtonville with Dr. Lewis and Dr. Howard on the 17th and 18th of July last, and witnessed the exhumation of the remains. I was requested to examine them critically, and see if I could trace any resemblance between them and Goss, that is, if I could identify them. I remembered the appearance of Goss in his lifetime, especially his prominent breast, and this I recognized in the remains. I also recognized the brow and forehead as his, together with the general appearance of the face across the region of the eyes. Cross-examination. The eyes were closed, not much sunken. There was no hair upon the head. I saw upon that corpse the features about the region of the eyes, which I recognized as those of Goss. I saw there the expression that Goss wore in his lifetime. The eyes being closed did not destroy this expression. A. R. Carter. I reside in Baltimore, am agent of the Continental Life Insurance Company. I was acquainted with Winfield S. Goss. He was a fine-looking man, about five feet eight or nine inches tall. Dark brown hair, nearly black. Had a beard and mustache when I knew him. His chest measurement was thirty-eight or forty inches, and he weighed one hundred and seventy-five pounds. He was of good figure, with broad shoulders. He had unusually fine teeth, as they appeared in conversation. I was in Penningtonville on the 18th of July last, and saw the human remains which were there exhumed. I recognized the body as that of Winfield S. Goss. I recognized particularly the prominent forehead, full chest, and square build. When I knew Goss, he was in the picture-frame gilding business. He also stated to me that he was engaged in manufacturing a substitute for India rubber. Cross-examination. The peculiarities by which I distinguished the remains as being those of Goss were his prominent forehead, his full chest, and his square shoulders. The Court. Do you mean to say that you recognized those remains as the remains of Goss, or that in the respect which you have mentioned there was a resemblance? Witness. I recognized them as his remains. They resembled him so closely I was positive they were his. I would have taken them for his if I had seen them anywhere else. Lewis Engel. I reside in Baltimore County, about one mile out from the city. I knew Winfield S. Goss. He lived at my father's house during the summer of 1871, and I was with him almost every day. He was a very fine-looking man, had a large chest, his shoulders were thrown well back, and he walked very straight. He had a broad forehead and had dark, heavy hair. He wore a finger ring with a bloodstone setting. It had square corners and flat top. The part that went around the finger was square on the edges and had a little groove in the middle of it. The ring was also a little bent, was not quite round. When he was living at our house, I would take the ring from him sometimes. I would take it off his finger and put it on mine and wear it. I admired the ring very much. It was a very pretty ring. I never saw one like it since that time. Question. Have you seen that ring since? Answer. Yes, sir, at Penningtonville. I think it was on the 17th or 18th of July last. Question. 
State whether or not you gave a description of the ring then before you saw it. Answer. Yes, sir, I did. Question. Could you recognize it if you were to see it again? Answer. I think I could. Witness was handed a ring, which he examined and said, That is the ring. Witness continued. At the time Mr. Goss lived at our house, he had a leather-colored valise. I never examined it closely. Witness was shown a valise. It looked something like that, about that size and color. Goss sometimes drank liquor. I have seen him drink, and one time he borrowed money from me to buy liquor with. At one time I saw him drunk. Cross-examination. The time I went to Penningtonville was upon the same occasion of which the others have spoken. Question. Do you recollect, upon any occasion, of Mrs. Goss calling at your house since the publication in the newspapers about what you have mentioned in reference to this ring? Answer. Mrs. Goss did not call at our house. Question by Mr. Whitney. Do you recollect of calling at Mrs. Goss's house? Answer. Yes, sir, she sent for me and I went to her house. Question. Do you recollect making any statement there to the effect that you did not mean to be understood as saying that this was her husband's ring, but it was one similar to the one her husband wore? Answer. I said it was the ring Mr. Goss had worn when he was at our house, and I thought it was his ring, and I have said that to different persons. Question. I am not asking what you told other people. Did you not say to her, in the presence of the family, that it was a ring that looked like the one that her husband wore, and that you thought it was the same? Answer. There was no one in the room at the time but Mrs. Goss and myself. I said to her that I thought it was Mr. Goss's ring, and that I was positive of it. Question by Mr. McVeigh. Where did you first hear of a ring found in this case? Answer. I knew nothing of it until I reached Penningtonville. J. W. Langley. I reside in Baltimore. Am agent of the Continental Life Insurance Company of New York. Have been acquainted with Winfield S. Goss many years. I first knew him in Nashville, Tennessee, and afterwards in Baltimore, Maryland. He was a man of medium height, large frame, full, deep chest, full weight. He had dark hair, inclined to curl. He had very fine front teeth. I was present with him in a photographic saloon at one time, at which time we had our pictures taken together. The picture was shown to and identified by witness. In this picture, Mr. Goss is standing and I am sitting. That is the position we were in when this picture was taken. John Charles Smith. I reside in Baltimore. I have known W.S. Goss. He boarded at Mr. Engel's, next door to where I lived. I saw him every day, passing him usually twice a day at the place where he boarded. He was about of the same size as myself, a little taller. He had dark, wavy hair and dark whiskers. He weighed about 180 pounds. Charles H. Jones. I am room clerk at the Central Hotel on Arch Street, Philadelphia. As guests come to the hotel, I see them register their names and assign them rooms. The hotel register of 1872 was shown to and identified by witness. 
under date of June 21, 1872, I saw the name of A.C. Wilson registered, as it appears here. I have no particular recollection of the individual. He arrived in the evening and went away the next morning about nine o'clock. End of section 32